Hi, James. Welcome to the How I Got Here podcast. This is a podcast series about successful people, and we ask them to share their success stories about how they got to where they are today. And as an author, I thought it would be really interesting for you to come in and explain to us how your journey happened and how you've ended up writing three novels, um, and all of them are published, and you even won the Literary Prize in Luxembourg last year. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, so what's the first piece of advice you would give about becoming a professional author? Uh, you can do it many different ways. Mm -hmm. I chose a very, very, very slow and long way, mm -hmm. which I think ultimately may be good for the sanity of myself, my family. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't put all my eggs into one basket. I developed a career as a teacher, mm -hmm. um, married, raised children in Luxembourg, and at the same time was partially writing at weekends. I would drive my daughters to birthday parties and I would sit there in the car and write and that sort of thing. Um, but it was never a total obsession or a total focus. I would have liked to have spent more time writing, but I, I couldn't because I wanted to keep the family and the health and the job and all of those things together as well. I think there's a romantic myth which is still out there, which is incredibly dangerous, which is that you have to give everything to your passion and you have to be totally devoted to writing to the exclusion of all else. That has led to countless broken marriages, unhappy people, miserable writers who've not made anything of themselves and then ended up with no life as well. Mm -hmm. um, so largely due to my wife's persuasiveness, I decided not to follow that route, but to go the other way and uh, to try and balance it. And I think it's it's worked. It's taken a long, long time. But right now I'm getting a little bit of success finally with the uh, with the writing. Um, but at the same time, I've had 20 wonderful years as a teacher as well um, and raised a family who are all happy and doing well and off at university. So um, I think it can be an alternative way of doing it. You don't have to get published at 25 and become a best-selling author overnight mm -hmm. immediately in your youth. What you mentioned about um, write, writing and solely writing and giving up your whole life to just write, it's true. It is this romantic myth, isn't it? And um, I studied English literature at university, and I think that that's something that we all thought. You know, everyone in my class thought that if you had to be an accomplished writer, you had to be willing to give up everything else and live off crackers and baked beans or you know really really just give up real life mm -hmm. and the things that you need to do to survive in real life for what's really important what we thought was really important and that was writing what do you credit to this misconception uh, as I said, the romantics, I think, mm. largely. Um, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, for example, they would have considered this idea of the writer as terribly limited. They thought that a human being should be um, involved in politics, they should be involved in war, in civic duties, in family, in philosophy, in sport. Mm -hmm. They went to the gymnasium, they, they wrestled, and then they discussed philosophy. They were far more rounded and balanced than we are. Mm. We, because of the romantics at the end of the 17th, 18th century, we developed this idea of, of the inspiration, inspired genius poet. Uh, who could do nothing else other than wait to be visited by the muse. And mm. that's a complete misconception and, and very, very dangerous. And I think if you do nothing but live on crackers, as you said, and wait for the great novel to come, you won't have any life experience to write about. You'll be very, very empty and dull. Mm -hmm. You haven't lived if you haven't had um, a job and a family and friends and been involved in politics and traveled and, and had life experiences. You've got nothing to write about. 
True. And thanks to some literature, we also believe that um, you're either born to write and you're born with these voices um, or you're not. So what's your take on that? Do you think that you can train yourself to become a good writer or do you think that it's innate? I think it's probably about 90 percent 10 90% you can train yourself and okay. it's incredibly hard work it's discipline um use when I said I'd written poetry forever I started at 16 and wrote for 30 years po- nothing but poetry uh 25 years and then I decided no I wanted to write fiction mm-hmm. and I thought arrogantly having studied fiction taught fiction that it would be you know easy you just sit down and write fiction but it's a whole craft that you have to learn like woodwork or you know you would never think that you would know how to go and do uh, welding or something you have to learn the the techniques and it's very very difficult when you learn it, it anybody can learn those it's just perseverance now obviously there's a little bit extra for those who are very great I think mm-hmm. and when did you realize that you wanted to write uh, I think it was when I was about 14, 15. Right. So my question for you now is when you were 14, 15 and you decided that you wanted to write, weren't you tempted by this romantic ideal of giving up any kind of dream to do anything else, let alone be a teacher, to just sit down and write? What gave you the kind of discipline that said, right, no, actually, I'm going to focus on building a life for myself and then I'm going to write? Ah, no, but I didn't. I very much bought into that whole idea. I, After university, I deliberately didn't pursue a career or a family or anything. I traveled mm. around the world, uh, taught EFL in different countries. I lived in Latin America and, and uh, the Middle East, uh, Europe, all over Europe. Um, and I was scribbling and writing, but, but quite unsatisfactorily, I didn't have enough material. I didn't have enough life experience. Um, and then when I got married at 31 and I had children and a teaching job and a house and a car and a mortgage all within about six months, suddenly <laughs> there was this eruption of poetry. And of course, there was no time to write, um, which was very, very difficult. So I, I finally found a subject which was, you know, parenthood and being in a marriage and, and, and being a teacher, all of those things were they were giving me lots and lots of material and yet I couldn't couldn't write about it. I didn't have God, how time. frustrating. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I did write some, but ultimately I gave up for a while and then came back to it later. And you said that your wife played a large part in keeping you on track yes. and not kind of derailing and going off and just writing in the shed and ignoring your children. What was it that she said that persuaded you? Well, after about two months teaching high school in America, I was ready to quit and run off to Mexico and write a novel uh, with a six-month-old baby. And my wife very wisely said, no, that's (laughs) not a good idea. And if if we had done what I wanted to do, we would now be living under a bridge. I mean, we would really be messed up and the children would be messed up and it would all have been a disaster. So she made me continue teaching in America and then get a job here in Europe and of course, coming here was fantastic because the, the work-life balance in Europe is so much better than in America. And mm-hmm. Suddenly, I was working at the European school. I was working at least a third less than I had been in America. Um, so I had more time there. And uh, slowly, over the years, I began, managed to get it in balance so I could write as well as teach. So you never felt held back by her suggestion? Oh, uh, (laughs) I think she would say dispute that. Yes, of course I did. I mean, I've wanted to write. It was the overriding passion of my life from the age of 14 or 15. And I bought into the romantic idea that you had to be, you know, a great starving, struggling writer. Um, But I don't think that's the only way to do it. But how great to be in your position now to not be starving and not be struggling 
and have also achieved, you know, having your books published. Yeah, it's good. So let's go back to the very beginning, when you first discovered books and when you first realised, right, that is something that I really, really love. What were you like as a child? Were you always reading? Were you always writing, scribbling things down? We didn't have very good books to read in those days. Okay. Children's fiction hadn't really been... Young adult fiction hadn't been invented. So That's uh, interesting to I know. read the whole of Dickens at the age of 10, mm. which was a terrible mistake, but there wasn't much else to read. It was, it was extraordinary. Um, now there's so much more that is good mm. to read for, for all ages. Uh, so I read a lot, but equally um, I ran around in the woods and played football. Where was this? Uh, just outside Canterbury in Kent. Okay. Uh, with my brother, um, and we spent a lot of our time dressed up as Robin Hood and making camps and forts and doing the old, you know, the old traditional childhood of mm-hmm. being semi-feral and largely ignored. What did your parents do? They were both teachers. Okay. Is that interesting for you that you've come full circle in a way? Because that wasn't what you wanted to do in the beginning. No, I rebelled passionately and said I would never, ever be a teacher. Right. I think it was partly because they were teachers that it took me so long to finally accept that I was one. Um, what did you not like about them being like you must have seen something no or, it wasn't that at all it was just I wanted uh, something different something more something more glamorous I think it's mm-hmm. very superficial a lot about me as my wife would say is very superficial <laughs> what did your what do your parents think about what you're doing now then um I think they're okay with it I think they would prefer it if I'd become the ambassador or something <laughs> uh, I met the ambassador this week and they were very keen to hear all about that um, I think they they would have I think they thought that given the way I was at university that I would do something more academic right but have they read your novels though? oh yes yeah, yeah. yes yeah they and have. they must be proud of you for writing the novels that you have I think so yeah I think so we're an English family I was about to we... say there's not much <laughs> said well my father's exactly the same I don't think he'd I think I could I could have done something amazing and and he'd still be like well I'm sure there's more things you could have achieved uh-huh. this is a cliched question but I did really want to ask you what's the first book you read that made you cry um oh that's a very good one um the first book I read that made me cry. I think it was The Silver Sword by Ian Serelier. Okay. Uh, World War II, Poland, Jewish family. Uh, not a Jewish family, actually. A Polish, no, Jewish, or it was a long time ago. Mm. Um, and the, they, they have to leave, Pol- leave Poland. The father gets arrested, mm. um, taken off to a camp by the Germans, and the children get separated and have to go and find him. And mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. It's called The Silver Sword. I think it's okay. still available. Okay. I read that about 10, and I remember being... The imagination is so much more powerful. Reading is so much more powerful when you're 10 than ever again. Um, it's a wonderful age to read. You get totally absorbed in a book. Do you not think that you can achieve that now? Oh, no, nowhere near. No, reading now is about 10% as powerful as Why it was. Why is that? Um, the, I think the imagination atrophies as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've experienced so much that so little is new, whereas when you're 10, you've never read about a German prison camp or Poland mm-hmm. or the Second World War or Jewish people. or All of those things are new, so everything is a discovery. Um, yeah, I think. This might be controversial to say, but I, th- I don't agree with that. And I think that, if anything, what took away from my reading was studying literature. I know that's such an awful thing to say. Mm. 
I don't look at literature the same way that I used to, um, or at least I don't look at novels that I've studied the same way um, as the novels that I read independently. Mm-hmm. Of With poetry, it's different. It completely opens you up and all the references to things that I wouldn't have known about or you know when teachers give you the references to things that's brilliant but when you pick apart my favorite book I'm like (laughs) no (laughs) when they go through all the this is the way he created the simile this is the way he created the metaphor I'm like no what are you doing Mm -hmm. um I think sometimes it's the like over, we become over analytical when the more we know, the the less we know. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that's what happens when you when you really study something and then you read. Yeah, but that's yeah. not disagreeing with what I was saying. I mean, I think at ten you're reading in a pre-critical way. You are reading that's in a direct without judgment. Yeah, yeah you're that's reading true. in an emotional way. Yeah, and an emotional way of reading is perfectly fine. Mm. I mean, it's, um, it's. Are you still able to read without judging as a writer? No. And <laughs> it drives my wife to distraction because she'll bring a book home and I'll read the first paragraph. And say and that I'll it's say, no good. But that's horribly written. Or that's, that's, but look at that comma. Or look at that semicolon. <laughs> oh, oh. And she'll go, oh, you snob. Can't I you know, get beyond that? I know, that's annoying. I know, yeah. <laughs> but you can't unsee. No. Stylistically, I find it very difficult to no, read prose that is really bad. Because you know that it's lazy prose. And you know how hard it is to make good prose. It takes hours and hours and hours. Mm. And you can look at a paragraph and go, that person didn't put in the time to make that interesting. Have you always known that there was a novel inside of you? Like from a young age, did you know, right? Someday, I don't know when, but someday I'm going to publish a book. It was always poetry. It was always poetry Mm -hmm. because uh, I wanted a much more immediate and direct way of, of venting grief and anxieties and, mm-hmm. and desires and things so it was poetry for a long time I didn't really write novels at all so when did it later. become prose uh my 40th birthday I was in Venice and okay. the girls were about seven and eight or something and they were finally a little bit more independent and I thought now I want to do something for myself and that's a bit different and so I went for a run in Venice and the sun came up and I said I shall write a novel how long did it take you to complete the first one? I never did. And uh, I hope my wife's not listening because she's very sore about this. Uh, it took <laughs> five years. <laughs> and uh, then I threw it away. Um, oh, you threw it away? Mm, it was an adult novel. Um, and it taught me how to write novels. But I don't think ultimately it quite works. So I threw it away. And then I started the three young adult novels. This was obviously pen and paper was like this was you penned it no no it was on well it's on a computer and a computer and you just deleted it uh no i mean when i say i threw it away i mean i never attempted to finish it or get it published okay so you could revisit it if you would it wasn't like when ernest hemingway lost his no 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 and i i did look at i found it the other day in a drawer and i thought oh there's some bits in here that are quite interesting so maybe one day i will Mm -hmm. although they do say it's really hard to revisit work because you left it for a reason Mm -hmm. so yeah um okay um when it comes to writing what's that process like for you so for people who are listening they might have their own writing process but they obviously want to hear from people who have published what's your writing process like Uh, from beginning to end there are two completely separate processes one is for poetry and one is for prose and i didn't realize this until i wrote the second uh Poetry, I think, cannot be forced. I think it is a moment of inspiration. It does fit the romantic idea of the sudden illumination. And I'll be sitting in traffic and Ruder Hollerich and suddenly something will happen and I will have a little 
tiny fragment, a half a sentence, half a line uh, or a line and a half or something. And I'll write it down and I'll know that that moment of insight will, will eventually, if I don't screw it up, will become a poem. Mm -hmm. And those happen about twice a year and they're incredibly okay. precious and wonderful and I love and cherish them but you cannot force them I, I can't force them uh, the prose however is a lot longer and more laborious and we have the word prosaic for a deliberate reason I think it is contrasted with poetic prosaic is of this world and, and, and much uh, more pedestrian um, so I can sit down and write every day for four hours and I know that at the end I will have produced X thousand words um, there are also moments of inspiration I, as I mentioned earlier I, I tend to go running in the woods and I don't trust anything really that comes from the top of my head. I prefer things that come up from the unconscious and the best way to get that I find is either first thing in the morning when I've just woken up mm -hmm. and I might hear characters talking to me or scenes happening or when I'm in the woods and I've kind of switched out of my workaday mind and I'm into a different mind. For me Luxembourg and the and the beech woods are very, very powerful, magical places. They, they've given me three of my, well, all of my last three novels. Mm -hmm. And do you find it dangerous when you don't write something down? Uh, yes. You lose it, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I've, I do have an obsessive compulsive disorder of a sort, a mild one. Um, and it's turned into that sense of, oh, my gosh, what happens if I get an idea and I haven't got my dictaphone or a piece of paper or a notebook or whatever. So I do tend to carry those around with me. I imagine you wouldn't go anywhere without no. at least pen and paper, right? Uh, yes. Just in case. Yeah, it used to be cigarettes and a lighter and now it's pen and paper. Far less romantic. <laughs> cigarettes and lighter would have been far more romantic. When What was the moment when you had your first novel ready? So now we've done the process, so let's imagine that everything is now on paper. What, what was next? Did you let anybody read it? Did you let your wife read it? Or did you want something, someone professional to read it? The very first one um, I wrote when I was in hospital here in Luxembourg, uh, and they had that wonderful European way of putting you on antibiotics for about two weeks just to see if it will clear up. I had a, a, th a th weird thing going on in my throat with a stone. And um, they just left me there for days and days. And my <laughs> wife, who's American, was going, but what, why are you still in there? You're still in there. You should be at work. This would never happen in America. You which should of be at work. Uh, but because I had two weeks in the hospital, I thought, well, I'll start writing a novel. So I started writing this novel. And it was pure genius. It was extraordinary. It was the best thing I'd ever written. Uh, well, it was amazing. And I came back home and I was totally excited. And I sat her down in front of the fire and I said, I'm going to read you this amazing novel. And I read it to her and uh, she said, that's rubbish. That's absolute <laughs> rubbish. Or she used an Americanism probably that was a bit stronger. And I looked at her and went, oh my gosh, it is. And I had been high on drugs in the hospital. Um, <laughs> and it had totally clouded my judgment. judgment. Oh, and man. so I was sure I had written this great novel. And, and then I realized, no, my wife's right. It's absolute rubbish. So uh, I threw that away and then started again. And very, very slowly it took, you know, years and years to get to the point that I think it was competent. Yeah. So you really trusted her judgment because what if it was really good and she just didn't like it? I do trust her judgment and I don't ever publish or go further with a novel than about um, halfway without mm. driving to Amsterdam with her. And on the way to Amsterdam, I read the novel to her while she drives. Out loud. Out loud. And it is brutal. It's the most embarrassing thing I know. It is so <laughs> humiliating. And she'll just... 
I'll come up to a really funny passage and I'll be waking, oh, she's going to laugh at this, she's going to like this, she's going to like nothing, no reaction at all. Or she'll just look at me and there'll be a little frown and I'll go, oh dear, that was a bit obvious, so that was cliché, that was stupid, oh, that really does sound bad. Um, so I'm meanwhile annotating furiously as I'm reading out loud. And um, she has then made major interventions. She's very good at plot. Much better okay. at plot than I am. She can understand murder movies. Is she a writer? Nope, no. No. Okay. No. Um, but she's a reader. She's a great yeah. reader. Best reader I know. Um, she can understand the plots of all sorts of murder murder mysteries that I, that leave me completely confused and lost. Um, <laughs> so she'll say, "But why don't you? Is that really going to? Ha- is that all that happens? Is that are you sure that's just the end? Oh no, that can't." And then I'll suddenly go, "But that's it. That's the end." And she'll no, 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 that's not the end. So she made me completely rewrite the end of the. Mysteries of Gogos. Okay. And we came up with a, an alternative ending, um, which is a lot stronger than the one I had intended originally. Yeah. Okay. So your wife's approved. So we're, so that's where we're at now. Your wife's approved, and the you've got the you've got the printed pages in your hand. What happens then? Did you go to a publisher with it, or what happens? I sent off to publishers. So this would have been about six years ago or something, and no, no success. Mm. Um, I think it's a very, very tough time right now yeah they're, they are struggling to compete in the in the marketplace and they're overwhelmed now everybody with a keyboard is sending in novels mm-hmm. um, I think the number one job most desired by most English people is novelist mm. it sounds great you live at home you work when you want to work you're independent who wouldn't want free, to do that yeah <laughs> you go and do marketing tours you do reading it sounds great and so they're just swamped um, yeah. so I sent off but I didn't have any contacts mm-hmm. I think I think what you need is to have done an MA in creative writing and to have to get an agent you can't send directly to the publisher you have to find an agent who will send to the publisher mm. that's a huge step to find that um, so after a while I just uh, I grew disillusioned with that process. I felt that they weren't necessarily even reading it more than just the synopsis and saying it's that. Depressing, that doesn't, isn't it's depressing. It's very, very depressing. Horrible. I mean, really, really painful. Um, and so I decided to publish it myself, and I did, and then um, sent it around in Luxembourg, and it got adopted for the baccalaureate in in a school in Belgium. That was mm-hmm. really, really good. Um, so I had a hundred kids. How did it happen? How did that? How did it go from j- being a book that you'd published yourself? It's all around Luxembourg. How did did it make its way to the Belgium and into the school system? Uh, well, just that one school. Uh, a woman who teaches here went into the, the old um, Little Britain, as it was, and found this mm. novel and picked it up and read it and liked it and then ordered it. Amazing. And what a nice feeling that must be. That was great. And I think they've done it for the last two years. I think yeah. they might be doing it again this year as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's been really lovely. Talking yeah. to 100 young people in Belgium um, about the novel and hearing their, their questions, and that was very special. Really, really good. Actually, Jane from Chapter One told me recently that you're at the Venus Zone... Mm-hmm was requested by the Luxembourg government so that they could have it as part of the library. That's right, yeah. That's, that's a, a big honour, isn't it? Mm. How did that feel to four be? Co- four copies, yeah. How did four that copies. feel? Feels great. Um, they've got my other novels as well and even a book of poetry, I think. Um, Luxembourg is very, very supportive. It's a wonderful mm. place to be a writer. And I think if I ever do make it, it will be because of Luxembourg, because it's a very small place that nurtures the people who live here and who write. And they're very keen on developing English language writing, which mm-hmm. I wasn't sure that they would be 
five years ago, and now they clearly are. Um, next month, they're having an evening of English literature at the National Centre of mm. Literature, and it's all going to be English writers. Um, there are national literary prizes with big money. £5,000 for five euros for a prize is, is a considerable. That puts it mm. up there with some of the major international prizes. Um, so it's, it's, that's good support. And being an English teacher in Luxembourg, do you find it hard to inspire your kids to become a writer? Or do you feel, you know, you said that it was so difficult to get published. You must have felt a bit disheartened yourself. And so what happens if one of your students who's 15, I don't know, what mm -hmm. is that the age that you mm -hmm. would teach, mm -hmm. says to you, oh, I'd really like to be a, a published author one day. What advice would you give, to, would you give them? Um... I think I would probably say what I said earlier, that you have a choice. You can, you know, put everything into it and it's very, very risky and you mm. may almost certainly won't get there and you can potentially screw up a lot or you can get another job, get some life experience, write on the side, keep writing, write, write, write for five years, 10 years, 15 years and, and try and balance. I think mm -hmm. balance is key. Um, I would never, um, I've had some incredibly talented writers at my school, and I've got some right now, and they go in for the national poetry competition here with the Printemps des Poètes, which is wonderful. Um, and But I would never just say, I think you should become a writer. I think writing is primarily, it's an activity before maybe it should be considered as a job. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a process of it's discovery of the world. It's a huge thing to say world. to someone as well, isn't it? And, and becoming a writer and living off writing is very different than being a really good writer. Mm -hmm. um, and being a really good writer is a wonderful thing and it's a way of seeing the world. Becoming a writer and living off it is about can you contact the right people? Do you have... Uh, good personal skills, are you pushy enough? Are you prepared to live in misery and poverty long enough? Um, do you get a lucky break? All of those things. It's actually quite different to the actual process, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. Nothing in common. We've spoken about balance quite a lot, and you seem to be a very well-rounded and balanced person. And the only thing we haven't really spoken about today is being a parent. Hmm. Um, and I'm interested to hear how... Because being an author, I think, is a lot about yourself. You know, and I think you spend a lot of time reflective, um, reflecting on your life and, you know, you you might consider yourself quite wise because you observe things a lot. How does that translate to being a father who is selfless um, and who's able to be there? And I like the selfless. I think mm. my daughters over in America will be giggling at that point. Um, they don't think they would call me selfless. <laughs> uh, my wife is perhaps a selfless mother. I'm not a selfless father. Um, but nor do I think necessarily a but you must have should been. be selfless. No, I don't somewhere. agree. You must have been because at the beginning of this interview, you said that rather than diving in and going, I think it was Mexico that you mm. said, mm. and right, you did, and your wife managed to put you mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And it takes a certain amount of selflessness. Yes, you're right. Okay. To be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Yeah. You know, and your advice to writers is not to give up everything and write because you don't want to neglect your children. And you said that that's mm. what you didn't do. Yeah, true. So let's explore true. that. Okay. Um, I, I think. I think it is important to have uh, 
good relations with your children. Obviously, I mean, that's a cliche, but so many writers, when you read their biographies, and I am addicted to writers' biographies, they're a form <laughs> of um, misery porn generally. <laughs> you read it and you go, oh my gosh, so Robert Frost, his children committed suicide and his wife dying of oh cancer God. refused to say goodbye to him on her deathbed. And you think, what sort of a daddy was he? What sort mm. of a husband? A lot of them are terribly, terribly awful parents and, um, and fathers. Yeah. yeah, Parents and husbands. Um, and I think... Writing is great, but it's never, ever as important as human relations. Mm -hmm. And I think that was another thing that the romantics got terribly wrong, that they elevated the solitary writer mm -hmm. into something that was somehow better than the integrated human being who is a father and husband and member of society. Mm -hmm. So how did you implement that into your everyday life? Um, I was lucky in that I was working at the European School, and mm -hmm. so I had some free afternoons. I had weekends. Um, I wrote early in the morning. And then at the end of my nine-year contract at the European School, I had a year off to write, and that was fantastic. So I did nothing except for write for a full year. How uh, does that feel, by the way? The first three months were stunning. Well, it, I was ecstatic. It was like, finally. Um, and then it was crushingly difficult in mm. the winter to get up in the morning in the freezing cold house and the family go off to work, to school, and you're left all alone with these voices in your head and you just have to write down what they say mm. and you go slowly mad. And I realized that I didn't want to be a full-time stay-at-home writer because it's a very lonely, difficult thing to do. Did you ever worry that you weren't good enough? Oh, yes, absolutely, all, huh. all the time. And you feel such a fraud when you're trying to tell people oh I'm writing and everybody looks at you like yeah right <laughs> you know it's not it's not a There's it's a, a conversation that, yeah. killer I mean yeah. you don't go to a party and say I'm writing everybody just <laughs> leave, leaves you and of course moves you away. are yeah yeah um, so no it's very very awkward and mm. difficult so you normally say I'm a teacher and then oh yeah and then you might if if you like them then you might tell them I would never are. bring it up I think, mm. I think people are generally not very interested either. Um, if somebody has read something and, and is interested, then that's great. But I, mm. I wouldn't force it on anybody, no. And do you, seeing as now you've come out the other end of, be, of being a teacher and being a writer, do you have any hopes for your children along those lines? Well, my older daughter is a far more talented writer than I will ever be. Um, and I don't know what she's going to do with it. She's at the moment making a very difficult choice. She's 20 years old. Um, mm. She's at Princeton in America. Um, she's deciding to become a high school teacher. Okay. And my wife is doubtful and I'm encouraging. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful career, wonderful profession. Um, but it's very young to start being a teacher at 20. So, I mean, I spent my 20s, as I said earlier, perhaps wandering around the world, you know, looking for things and, and teaching English to adults and working for the Saudi Arabian Navy and generally and joining the revolution in Nicaragua and all those things um, until I felt that I was old and really mature enough to teach in mm -hmm. secondary school, which was 31. Um, that's a long time to spend. Um, so I think she's got some years ahead of her when you know, she'll be writing and thinking about teaching. And Perhaps she's taken your advice and she wants to have a career first to get some material and then we'll sit down and write later on. I think so, yeah. yeah. And she's steered away from the creative writing set at Princeton and I think she's she's found that whole um, 
dedication to writing and getting published and networking and getting pushy um, a little bit scary and mm. off-putting, I think. So she's, I think, at the moment, she was doing that for a while and I think she's now backed off it and is just writing more just for the pleasure of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it takes a certain type of character to, be- to become a successful writer nowadays then? Um, I think, yes, I think you have to be possibly better at self-promotion than you would have been 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a much more competitive marketplace and I think the old networks have to some extent broken down and new ones have formed and I think it's uh, it takes a person who's prepared to go out there and, and meet people and make contacts. Those people generally are not writers. I mean, those are the talents uh, that go with, say, business people, mm-hmm. but not with the introspective, solitary, solipsistic poetry types or novel writing types who are not generally very good at that. So what do you think about all this blogging then? And I just wondered whether, as a writer and as a teacher, whether you think that that's beneficial to people who are trying to write because it gives you confidence and courage, or if it's actually quite terrible because it's diluting good material that's out there. Ah. Would you consider Tumblr? Is that a blog? Yes, so things ah, like, yes. Okay. Now so I, that now kind I'm of on, blogging. Now I'm on safer ground because my older daughter, the writer... Like online journal. ...was I, big in... I think she still is, was big into Tumblr. And okay, for her, right. it was incredibly beneficial. Okay, no, I, okay. <laughs> she had a 1,000 followers when she was 16 or something, yeah. and she would put poems up there. And I was so envious because when I was writing poetry at 16, mm. it was a shameful activity. It was one that you hid from everybody, particularly if you were male. It's um, cringy, isn't it? <laughs> it was awful. Nobody, nobody. And you, I don't think anybody read any poem I ever wrote until I won a prize at university for it. And that was probably the first poem. And that I still refuse to show to people. <laughs> um, so it's um, having a readership is amazing and powerful and makes you want to write more. And she got a huge amount out of that blog. I know she did. I think it's a lovely way of making communities that wouldn't necessarily exist in the real world. Mm. My daughter was finding poet friends uh, in America when we were living in Luxembourg, all over the world, in fact. Mm. Um, And she got, I think, what were quite intense relationships, even though she never met them, but because they were clearly kindred spirits with a passion and a talent for writing poetry and they were bouncing off each other. She was getting something from that that she couldn't find in Luxembourg in real life. I think that was that it's was. It's inspiring in in a way, isn't it, mm-hmm. that they managed to connect without even having to physically mm-hmm. meet. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people say, if you want to become a writer, then all you have to do is write, like literally write every single day. Is that advice that you would give? No, I think you have to read every day. Okay. Um, I think you have to read, 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 and then the writing is secondary because so much has been written already that mm. unless you've read hugely, you won't know whether you're just repeating what's already been done. So how do you know that you're actually writing something that's new and worthwhile and original unless you already know what's been written? Sometimes I feel like the more you read, though, you feel like the less you actually want to write because you're like, oh, God, everything's been said. That is one of the dilemmas that you have to face as yeah. a writer because that's the, the maybe the major work hazard of being a writer is that, that feeling that it's all been said already and what are you and who are you to add to, mm-hmm. to, to add to it. But I think you owe it to your readers to actually take that and face that head on because otherwise you could be writing a story and somebody says, well, that one's already been written. Yeah. We're wasting our time. Yeah. 
Um, and what would you do differently when you look back on your life and your career? It could be personal or in your career. What would you do differently? I think I would have... Um, I'm really glad I gave up academia. So that was great. Mm. I'm really glad I'm not a, an academic. Um, Why? That was a major decision I had to make. I was doing a PhD at Cambridge and I was about 25 or so and I just threw it up one day and ran off to Guatemala and that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Why? Because I think as an academic I would have ended up um, spending all day isolated reading books and then I would never have wanted to write in my free time. Whereas mm -hmm. I spend all my day with people and that's wonderful and then I'm happy to read and be isolated in the evening and the weekends. Um, what I would, I think I would have maybe started teaching in earnest earlier and accepted that that was my destiny rather than resisting it and fighting it for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would have maybe, but then I would have probably taken my teaching maybe more seriously as a career and I would have tried to advance, not that you can really advance very much in teaching, which is one of the glories of teaching. Um, you can get better, but you can't really climb up any ladders. Um, I might have been tempted to get into better schools and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it was difficult because your parents were teachers and it's always off-putting when your parents are doing something you don't really want to follow in their footsteps generally, do mm -hmm. you? Absolutely, and that's that's why I did did it the way I did. No, mm. I don't think I would change many things, actually. And this goes hand in hand with the next question. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? I would tell my 18-year-old self to be a lot less arrogant. Um, I was very, very arrogant. And I think I was arrogant because I was insecure as a teenager. Um, and therefore, I overcompensated by making myself clever. And I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I used knowledge as a way of making myself better. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, uh, that was a mistake. Um, Have you written about that? No. I'd love no, to haven't. read about that. Oh, would that. you? Ah. I would love, because I, I have a theory mm -hmm. that a lot of people do that. And I've met a lot ah. of people who have done that. I think that's such a great concept. But that's in the Venus zone, that whole sense mm. of siblings. How do you define yourself as a success? Mm. And Henry has to define himself through his brain and being, you know, intellectual mm. and number one. And Paul reacts against that and goes off to make money. Yeah. And Paul is actually a lovely guy. Yeah. Well, I don't want to tell you too much, but yeah. but he's gone the way he has because he's trying to impress his parents, but yeah. not through the academic route that, that Henry chose, but through, you know, making money and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, I hope you do explore that idea of... Well, you've given me my next novel. Thank I'm... you very, very much. <laughs> I've tried to write heroes who aren't like me. Um, Thibaut, the current one in The Venus Zone, is, is much nicer than I was. Much, much nicer. He's so likeable. He's so likeable. So and likeable. I was so unlikable. I know. Everybody <laughs> says that. Everybody says that. Um, and then Danny in the one before, he had a lot of my um, seasonal affective disorder, mood swings, manic uh, depression. He had a lot of my darker, more complicated stuff in him. Um, and people don't like him very much. Well, so much. Um, and the other one is just a, an all-round good uh, American kid who is very practical. And that's and your nice. brother. Um, well, Tebow is my brother. The other one, Ronnie Chicken Dance, uh, he's not anybody, actually. He's just invented. Mm. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing, to reading your next novel. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do write that one. I'm so intrigued by <laughs> Three that. Three years of labour. I don't know <laughs> that I've got it in me, but I will see. Um, and what would you choose as the soundtrack to your life? Uh, I think I would splice together 
Well, mm. I, can't, I can't splice, but I think I have a, an ex-student called Alberto Stocco, who's a DJ in Luxembourg. I think he could splice together Mahler's second symphony, the last movement, the resurrection, which is an ecstatically wonderful bit of classical music, um, with Dirty Dancing, the soundtrack, so that okay. uh, I could um, ba balance the two sides of myself, the highbrow and the very, very lowbrow. Okay, well, we're not allowed to splice on this um on this podcast so i'm going to choose for you i'm going okay. to choose dirty dancing okay good could you tell us why it's a movie i discovered with my wife uh, it represents to me the very lovely side of america mm -hmm. america as a place of joy and dance and fun and patrick swayze who was amazing and and a different period that seems a lot more innocent and lovely in many ways than our period now and every time i watch it i I find it very, very affirming. Mm. And uh, we had a birthday party with the girls once and we showed that last scene where Patrick Swayze says, nobody puts baby in a corner. Yeah. And then she runs down the aisle and throws herself into his arms. And uh, that is about the best bit of cinema I think I can imagine. Cheesy and, and so lowbrow and all of brilliant. that. I'm sorry, but I believe that that's a very important part of human experience. I think a lot of literature loses its readers because it tries to be too cool, yeah. too experimental, mm -hmm. too cerebral, and doesn't acknowledge the fact that we have a sentimental side to us. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? That's part of being human. And yet it's the ultimate insult in literary fiction to say that it's sentimental. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't make sense. We have that within us and we should honor it. Well, on that note, then it seems really appropriate for me to play Dirty Dancing Great. now. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on this podcast. And we look forward to reading your next novel. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you Marina. Now I have the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's the truth. And I owe it all to you. Yes, I have the time of my life. And I Magical